0: Matthew 25, uh, this, we're in a section of Matthew 24 and 25 called the Olivet Discourse, um, where Jesus is answering some questions of his disciples. I'll not focus anymore today on the first question that he asked, but the second and third are where we've really been focusing uh, for the last couple of weeks, uh, and we'll do so again today. Matthew 25, so those questions his disciples asked Jesus just a couple of days before he will be put on trial and die on a cross. Two to three days left. And by the way, let me interject this. Uh, I'm not pitting Scripture against Scripture nor elevating one section above another. But uh, enjoy these times where we get to just study and read the words of Jesus. Um, we're getting ready to get into a section uh, which is major in the Scripture. And that's the passion, the trial, The crucifixion, resurrection of Christ. But right now we're getting his words just full throttle. I do not have a a red letter edition Bible in front of me with the words of Christ in red, but if I did, it would be read all over here. And so enjoy this. We're just getting the pure words of Jesus trying to teach us something that we need to know. So here's the question What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so Jesus has been answering that. He gave some general descriptions back in chapter 24, and then he gave some very specific signs. I'll not reteach that this morning. Very specific things to look for, general things to look for. And then ultimately, the point for the last few weeks and again today is this idea of be ready when he comes. Readiness is the theme. Readiness. Uh, Today, we're going to look at the third of three parables in chapter 24 and 25, and they all have the same ultimate theme of be ready when Christ comes, because he says, he knows, he's saying when he actually comes, he says it's going to be a gap of time, and no one knows when he comes, but when he does, the vast majority of people are not going to be ready. And so, he gave a parable at the end of chapter 24 to illustrate what readiness looks like, Then he gave a parable at the beginning of chapter 25, 1 through 13, that we looked at last week to give us an idea. This is what readiness looks like. And now again today, a long section, verse 14 to 30, is another parable. This is what readiness looks like, but each one has a different emphasis. And so before I read the whole text, it'll be on the screen in a moment, but there's going to be a note I'm going to give you just with your eyes, not on the screen, but look at verse 14, for it... You see that? Now, if you were here last week, you know what is it. That takes us back to chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like, and he gave that parable there. So this is a continuation of what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. So real quick, a couple of things. What does he mean when the kingdom of heaven that he's talking about? He's not talking about the ultimate consummated millennial kingdom or eternity. He's talking about the visible church. What will that be like at the end of the age right before Christ comes? What will it be like? Then he told the parable of the ten virgins. He said there's these ten virgins, and they went out. They want to, to be part of this procession. There's a groom who's coming with his bride, and they're heading to the, the wedding feast. And these ten girls go out, and they all have their torches. But, and they all think they're going to go to the wedding feast. The problem is only five of them will make it. Remember, this is a picture of... The visible church. You say the visible church. Again, the visible church is what I'm looking at right here this morning. So what that means is if those of you, many in here are not members of Grace View, which is fine. Many of you are members of Grace View. Those that are members of Grace View, you've been baptized. You've made a profession of faith that you're a Christian, and no doubt many others here that are not members. You've been baptized, and you've made a profession of faith that you're a Christian, and I really, really hope that all of us end up in heaven. But the high likelihood is that in this room, there are some who think they're ready for eternity, and there are those who really are ready for eternity, and we need the Lord to reveal who they are. So here goes these ten virgins off to intercept the wedding procession. They all think they're going to make it. Five make it, five don't. Why? There were five foolish and five wise. What's the difference? The five wise took oil to put on their torch when they need it. The five unwise, the five foolish, stupid girls did not take oil. And the problem is as they went, the bridegroom was delayed. Jesus is telling the parable where he, the, the bridegroom represents him. He's going to have a delay before he comes. So in this story, they know the groom is going to come this way and the procession is going to go that way and the wedding feast is going to be there, but... They fall asleep waiting because the groom doesn't come come until midnight. Then at midnight, this midnight cry goes out that the bridegroom is here. Come out to meet him. And so then they all wake up and they start lighting their torches five of them have the oil and douse their torch they light theirs the other five realize they don't have what was needed the most they have to have the oil and so they start asking the others can we have some of your oil and they say no if we give you our oil we want to have enough for us and so they then have to go now what they should have been doing now they go to get oil just before the bridegroom's actually coming but while they're gone he comes and those that were ready go with him and they end up in the feast and the door is shut they the others who were not ready who at the moment of the big event suddenly decided better go get some oil they end up down outside the wedding feast trying to knock and get inside but they're told I do not know you you're not allowed to come inside and so that's a picture of what readiness will look like and then that leads into today's parable so before we read the text write this note The parable of the ten virgins emphasizes that aspect of readiness which we looked at last week, which is the preparation, the advanced preparation of salvation. The parable of the ten virgins has to do with the preparation of salvation. What we're getting ready to read in this lengthy text of the parable of the talents has to do with the particular readiness of faithful service. The ten virgins teaches preparation of salvation. Can we borrow your oil? No, you can't. You have to have your own relationship with the Lord. You have to have your own moment of conversion. No one can share their salvation with you. You should have taken care of this already. It's too late when the Lord comes back. It's too late when you die. That opportunity is gone. We must prepare beforehand, before the big event. But then again today... The main point of this parable is the preparation of faithful service to Christ. So let me boil it down real quick and we're gonna read the text. You're ready for Christ's second coming when you're saved and serving. That's the point of these two. Say it again. You're ready. You are ready for Christ's second coming. Yes, last week we saw there's anticipation. You anticipate. But it's not just about looking out the window and looking in the sky, twiddling your thumbs. I'm ready for the second coming of the Lord. No, you're ready when you're saved, the ten virgins, and you're ready when you are serving. If you are not saved by faith in Christ alone and you're not serving, you are not ready. If you are here and listening and watching... And you are trying to serve the Lord, but you're not saved. You're serving, but you're not saved. You are not ready for the coming of the Lord. But we'll go further. If you are saved, this is today's message. You say, Jeff, I know I'm saved. If you are saved, but not serving, you are not really ready for the second coming of the Lord. Notice verse 14. Let's read our text. For it, the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey. There's a man... This man represents Jesus. So here's his story. It, the kingdom of heaven would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. He's leaving. I'm going to give you some of my property. To one, he gave five talents. I know how he, we hear the word talents. We think of abilities. We'll talk about that in a moment. This guy's is an amount of money. He makes it very clear in verse 18, we're talking about money. And it's a large sum of money. It's a very large sum of money. Verse 15, he's leaving. He's going to give his servants a stewardship. I'm going to give you something. You're responsible for it. Verse 15, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. So there's the the foundation. He gives that one five, that one two, that one one, each according to his ability. Then he leaves. Well, what are they going to do with it? Verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. Went at once, kind of immediately, and he started doing business. He traded with them, and he made five talents more. Took the five, worked with it, made five talents more. So, also, verse 17 implies that what was just said about the one with five, also, he who had the two talents made two talents more. He went and traded, went immediately, started working with this, traded. He ends up taking his two, two more, it becomes four. Verse 18. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. He dug in the ground, hid his, he just, Buried it, just covered it up. Did nothing with it. Buried what was given to him. Now, after a long time, we don't know how long. Was this months? Was it years? We're not told this represents the long delay between Christ leaving at the ascension until he comes back again in his second coming. We don't know. We're in between verse 18 and 19 is where we are representing this story. Verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward. Notice, he came forward. He who had received the five talents came forward, bringing, that's an important word, bringing five talents more. Do you see it? He had the five, he's got that, bringing five more. He actually has 10, if you really read it for what it says. So verse 20 again, he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, so here's his evaluation, master, you delivered to me five talents Here, I have made five talents more. What's going to happen? His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So there's three things happen there. Right? Well done. You did that. I'm going to do this. Now enter into the joy of your master. Verse 22, and he also who had the two talents came forward. He came forward saying, master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You're like, man, that sounds like identical. I guess they're all going, nope. Verse 24, he also who had received the one talent He came forward saying, notice he's not bringing anything. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered, where I've scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what is my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. He has his original five plus the additional five, now he has 11. Verse 29, why is this happening? Jesus says, for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, Lord, he only had one. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast away the worthless servant, into the outer darkness, Jesus says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's notice three things in our text this morning. Number one, there is a distribution of varying responsibility. There's a distribution by the master who represents Jesus of varying responsibility. There's a distribution varying. There's all, they all have responsibility They all have something distributed to them, but it's varying in its amount. So again, we have this word talents. Today we use that for ability. You know why we use it that way? Probably because of this parable right here. This word has totally changed. This is not the original meaning of the word. Originally, the word talent had to do with a weight. It was a weight measurement. But by this point, it had also not just meaning a weight, 75, 80, 90 pounds, but it also meant by this time a denomination of money that basically we can have an idea. So I'm going to go try to give you some idea, very unexact numbers, just so we can kind of appreciate what we're dealing with. Some of you have the ESV Bible there in front of you, and you'll have a note down there, and the ESV note says the following. A talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years' wages for a laborer. So one talent is about 20 years' wages for a laborer. So I'm going to do something. I'm going to throw it out. Usually I go 5000 less than I'm about to say, but we've had some really bad inflation the last couple of years, right? That's legit. And the workforce is low. Like people can't hire workers, and that means they're having to pay workers more than they used to. So I'm going to offer, we're talking about laborers. This is how much they make in a year. Entry-level p- pay. I'm going to offer, honestly, guys, it's got up there to where it's probably around like $30,000. And I know some are saying, I don't get paid that. Okay, but a lot of people at an entry-level position are making $30,000. So let's do the quick math. If we're talking about a talent, is A laborer's wage for 20 years, we're talking about in our day, not theirs, but in our economy, about 30,000 times 20 is how much? $600,000. six hundred thousand dollars so the guy who has one talent this this master's leaving listen i'm going to give you six hundred thousand dollars equivalent I'm giving you six hundred thousand you I'm going to give one point two you're getting two talents you're getting one point two million dollars that I'm going to leave with you and you over here you're getting five talents i'm leaving you three million dollars so three million one point two and six hundred thousand we're not talking about a little bit of money here and off he goes and he heads away notice verse fifteen Look at it with your eyes as I kind of comment on it for a second. How many of these servants end up having something given to them? How many? All 3, each one. But notice, they're each we just talked about each is giving a different amount. Why is this guy given 300, 3 million and this guy over here is given $600,000? Why? Can anybody see the answer in verse 15? Because they were each given according to their ability. This guy in the middle is given 1.2 million because he doesn't have as much ability as this guy over here. But he has more ability than this. This is what Jesus is trying to say. There is a varying level of responsibility that is given. Now here's where a little nuance, subtle, I won't spend long on it. But in this story, this man, this is an earthly man that's a master, and he recognizes the different ability in his workers, his servants. And so he gives him more and him less, but more than that, and him the least. He has that prerogative to do. He's a smart man, recognizing varying ability. But when we step back and realize that when Jesus, as the creator, made us, he doesn't just like know our ability He actually determines our ability, and then based on our ability, he then gives us certain things in our life that are to be used to further his kingdom. And so he not only knows our ability, he grants our ability. Write this note, since God knows how he made us, each Christian, each true Christian receives unique responsibilities for Christ's kingdom. All of us, everybody in here, no one in here has the exact same package given to them. We are all very different. We each receive unique responsibilities within Christ's kingdom. R.T. France writes the following Catch this, this is important. He says, It will be the slave's responsibility. Y'all understand that who we are in the story? We're the servants. Jesus is the one. He's gone away. When's he coming back? We don't know. It's going to be a long time it has been a long time we may be right there at the end we may be at verse 19 but when he does he's going to come back and give this evaluation because we've been made stewards of all that God has given us he's given us varying amounts France writes the following it will be the slaves responsibility not to look with envy at the different hand which has been dealt to their colleagues it's our responsibility not to look with envy at the different hand that's been dealt to our colleagues I've been guilty of that. I'm confessing in my past I have, Lord, why do you make me like this? Something about myself, particular two or three particular things. Why did you make me like this and not like not like that? Why not more like them? I've struggled with that, and I'm not the only one in the room. We're, We're guilty. We are not to do that. Listen, that is the biggest waste of time. That is a waste of time. We've been given what we've been given, and that's what we're to work with. So now I need to do something that's I can't spend long on. it. I'm telling you, the whole message could just stop, and we could park on this next note. So here's how we, we need to put our minds. What does this money in the story represent? Does it represent money? Yeah. But that's not all. Probably not even the main thing that we're talking about. We're going to put it in a list. I'm going to give you guys about 15 that I just thought of, and I'm telling you, we could make up 50 things that this represents. These different things amounts and denominations of money that this master gave to his servants represents things that we've all been given in our life I'm going to give you 15 I think you're going to write down 8 or 9 or 10 I forget how many blanks you have but I'm going to give more than that and I'm telling you we could just add a dozen more easy what does do these talents represent that Christ has given to us that we are to be stewards of let me fly through the list so that you can write it and while you're writing I want to make some additional comments but don't write yet Don't write yet. Just hear it. You ready? Let me fly through this list. The talents here that's been distributed to God's people, to the visible church, represents things like our physical makeup, our intellect, our early home developmental life, our personality, our gospel exposure. We've all had different gospel exposure. How early? How clear? How often we were exposed. We've all had different discipleship training. Culture varies among people through the millennia, through the centuries. Different places around the world. Most of you are like me. I've lived in a southern United States of America culture for all my 52 years. In this time period, the end of the 20th, beginning of the 21st century. That's the culture I've been living in. Christians have lived in all different kinds of cultures. The connections that we have, some some people have a lot more connections, some have less, some have greater connections. Advantages, I'll just use the word advantages that we've been given. Money, the amount of money that we've been given. Capacity to make and earn money. Different amounts of health, different amounts of time. Praise the Lord, a couple of weeks, Miss Maggie's supposed to turn 100 years old. I'll never see that in this world, I'll guarantee you that. But not many people see 100. Not many people see 90. So there's different levels of health, time, different amounts of time, and spiritual gifts. And then I'm also going to include this idea of energy. We we have different levels of energy. And those of us that are older recognize that as we get older, the energy level is lower. But some of us are just innately have different levels of energy. So as you're writing some of those things, let me go back and point out. So here's what I want you to understand. God has given us the equivalent of what? This master gave to his servants a whole blend, a broad range of things represented by that little short list that I just gave you. That's a sample list. God gave you that body. God gave you that body. What you do with that body, you're going to give an account for. I think the clues in the Bible are, if you were to go back to Old Testament times, I think the clues are that David, King David, was probably an absolutely striking person. I, I, I about bet you if David lived in our day and walked in here, everybody would be like, dude, is that guy a model? I mean, yeah, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. This guy's a warrior. Look at him. He's awesome. And there is literary, not in Scripture, but there is literary indication that seems pretty reliable that Saul of Tarsus, who we know as the Apostle Paul, was around Four feet six inches tall. Did he make the most of the body God gave? And he had bad eyesight. One, we know David made great use. Saul, sorry, but oh no, I will use the body I've been given. Our intellect varies. Again, early home life. Some of you are like, "Man, I just had the best childhood. My parents, they're just awesome." And there's other people that will hear this. That here's their attitude. Here's the fact. It was tough. Their parents did not do a good job. And they learned it from their grandparents, who learned it from the parents before them. And it's like, it was awful. It was horrible. Okay, God allowed you to be put in a position that you had no control over, but you're going to give an evaluation. You're going to give a response and an account for what you do with that. Can you redeem that? Some of you are like, man, my childhood just sprung me into life. It was great. And others of you are like, that's the thing that's holding me back. Well, you're going to give an account of what you do with your early developmental life. Your personality. Again, your gospel exposure. How old were you when you heard the gospel? How often did you hear the gospel? How clearly how purely did you hear the gospel? Once you've been saved. Your, your discipleship training. I know there's some thinking, I'm learning things now that no one ever taught me. Why I'm such and such years old. I've been saved for decades and no one ever taught me these things. We all vary in our discipleship training. Again, culture, connections, advantages. I thought of me. I've had some advantages. There are many more than this, but three that stood out to me. I had a pastor who taught us the Bible. I had a pastor who taught us the Bible. I had a whole season of my life, like 15 or 20 years, where my number one main job, my number one, the number one that I got paid for was to study the Bible so I can teach Bible classes to high school and, ju- and middle school, uh, junior high school students. That's a major advantage. You're going to get paid to do... Now, we didn't get paid much, I'll tell you that, but... So that was a disadvantage, but the advantage was, here's, you're going you're to do this. This is what you do with your life. That and coach some teams and do some PE classes and things like that. I had an advantage now. I have some good books. Those books in my office, I haven't read a third of them yet. But the ones I've read, they're like good ones. I have good sources, man. Major advantage over other people. Time, spiritual gifts. All of God's people have been given spiritual gifts. Speaking of that, one of those lists, you don't need to turn there, but one of those lists of spiritual gifts is in Romans 12. And when we we're doing our Romans 12 study with Chip Ingram a couple of months ago, or a month ago, we learned this. Here, Romans 12, 3, because the Bible teaches us, as we're evaluating that list that I just went through, For by the grace given to me, Paul says, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Think with sober judgment. Do a honest, proper, not arrogant, but not fake and false humility, self-evaluation. Where am I at? Man, that one got 3 million, and that got 600,000, this one got 1.2. Where am I at in what God has given me? We need to take an honest assessment. Remember a while ago, I threw out the idea of energy. Energy is one that I think, again, different people vary. I like basketball. I remember a few years ago, I was watching a, a basketball game, and one of the announcers, I think it was Jay Billis, was saying how this team over here has this skill and that skill, and they can handle the ball well, and, and they're really tall, and they're strong, and they're fast, and they got guys that can leap really high, and they got good shooters, and this team over here is just not as talented. But, man, this team over here plays hard. And I remember him saying something I totally agree with. Playing hard is a talent. Playing hard is a talent. And so, in other words, you'll see a team like that that's just not as Outwardly talented, hang with, and sometimes even beat that group. There are going to be some Christians who are not as talented, but one of their talents is they have a lot of energy and they're willing to work hard. They are willing to serve the Lord, and they're going to be more ready than some others who are in the room now that have more gifting. And that's one of our things we don't want to let happen in our own individual lives. So Paul says, Take this honest self evaluation. As I've done that, here's what I've concluded. Let me get my wording. It's real simple. I have a lot less ability than a lot of other pastors and preachers. That's what I've concluded. I read R. T. France and I read D.A. Carson, and I'm like, I don't even know half what they're saying. (laughs) And they really know, they really know what they're saying. If I can understand it. And then I read guys like Barclay, and it's just like, man, he's just, he's able to just. Make things clear, and guys like MacArthur and Sproul, and it's just like, man, they're able to kind of apply it and make it clear. And then I I look at guys like Wearsby and JC Ryle, who have the gift of making not just clear, but concise. I don't have that one. I really like that one. (laughs) I just like, man, I go to these conferences, right? You go to these conferences, sometimes you hear these preachers, and it's like every sentence is dripping with impact. They just got more. But if I'm honest, this is me speaking personally. I've been given more than some others. So I'm not, I, others have more than me, but I've been given more. I have more ability than other pastors and preachers. And so what that means is, I'm less responsible than some, but I am more responsible than others. What's the difference between these three servants? What's the difference between them? We may think, well, I'll tell you the difference. The difference is that one got three million and that one got 600,000. And I know, we're thinking, I'll tell you the difference. Why that happened, the difference is in their ability Nope, that's not the primary difference. Why don't you write this down? The primary difference in these three servants is not their ability nor in the amount of money they were given. The primary difference is two were faithful and one was wicked and slothful. That's the difference. Two were faithful, one was wicked and slothful. So what does the faithful look like? If you've written that, look at verse 16. He who had received the five talents... Went at once and traded. Catch that phrase. Went at once and traded. Guys, you can figure out with me in the context of this story. He got five talents, more than the other guys. What's he going to do with it? He went at once and traded with them and turned the five into ten. That phrase, at once, carries this idea. He went immediately and he went and worked continuously, steadily, immediately, steadily. I'm going to borrow from MacArthur who helps us out here. He says that word traded, he went, he went at once and traded. He writes, quote, Traded carries the broad connotation of doing business over a period of time. Please pay attention. This is one of the most important things. This might be the main thing somebody here needs to listen to. He writes, it's the connotation of doing business over a period of time. The slave did not simply make one good investment and and then sit back. He later writes, he used to full advantage all the resources his master had given him. Note that line again because I think that's what's happening here. The slave did not simply make one good investment. He didn't buy Walmart stock in the 80s. He didn't buy Coca-Cola in the 70s or the 60s. He didn't buy Chick-fil-A when some guy got an idea. I'm going to make a chicken sandwich. Oh, look what happened. And then just kick back and rest. What's being described is steadily working with. Steadily working with. And then the master comes back. And when he comes back, looks at what's happened. Your three million has become, here's the three that you gave me. And it's become six. Because I've added three more to it. By working steadily. Jeff, why is this a major important point? Because there may be someone listening right now, and this is your life. You're a Christian, but as you look back over your life, and you maybe have some friends, and you console yourself with this. You remember when we were in our 20s, how we served the Lord? you remember that ministry? You remember we started that thing, and, man, we just worked real hard back in our 20s. Remember? Oh, yeah. And even in our 30s, we served the Lord? What are you doing now? Oh, well, then the kids came along. And then the grandkids came along. And the bills got higher, so we got to work more. And now, as far as that, I'm retired. You've retired on the Lord remembering the good old days when you had a flurry of ministry. That's not what this first and second servant did. They just served the Lord. Notice verse 18. What does the other one do? But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Isn't that convenient? Here's this. He gets $600,000. They go off and work with theirs. He goes and he digs a hole and he buries the money so that he doesn't have to think about it. I thought about it. I've read verse 18. It hit me the other day. He who had received the one talent dug in the ground. Hit his, he does one action. One thing. He makes one abrupt decision, takes an action, and just buries what was given to him. And now he don't have to think about anything until the master comes. This seems like a great plan, right? No, it's not a great plan. If you're taking notes, write the following. Other people having more more ability, more whatever, more all of those things that are on our list. Other people having more ability than you does not condone any of us to give less effort with what we've been given. He thinks it's a great idea. They're out working with theirs. He's just going to go bury his. That's a horrible idea. You're going to give an account. Verse 19 is coming, ladies and gentlemen. Verse 19 is coming. So it is my job to ask you guys. The Lord, I think, would want me to ask us, what have you done with that body God's given you? What have you done with your intellect, your early home life, your personality? How are you leveraging your personality with your gospel exposure? Is this this you? I've heard the gospel in my life many times and clearly, and I have rejected it. Okay, you're going to be like the five foolish virgins. You're going to be unprepared. You're going to be left behind. You'll end up experiencing verse 30. Or is this you? Oh, I heard the gospel and I've received it and I enjoy my salvation. I'm looking forward to living in heaven. But you've not passed it forward to anyone else. Or can you honestly say, I've received it and I invest it. Your discipleship training. Do you just listen and take things in and take good notes and go to the various opportunities and classes. And again, just grow in your knowledge and maybe even grow in your own personal holiness. But you never pass it on to anyone else. Then you're bearing what's been given to you like the third servant. What are you doing with the money that God has entrusted you? Do you waste it? Do you just spend it on yourself? Or are you investing it in the kingdom? That's what we're talking about. Your ability to create wealth. Your spiritual gifts. Your time. Do you just waste your time? Do you just use your time on yourself? Or do you invest your time into the kingdom of the Lord? Verse 19 is coming. Number two. Jesus commends good stewardship. Jesus commends good stewardship in verses 19 to 23. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, and he who had received... So there's something immediately. This is one of the first things I noticed as I started taking notes when I was reading this early in the week. I think most of you know by now how I... Do Bible study is one of the ways we've been taught to do it on Wednesday night. Before I look at anybody else's book, i got my computer there, and I just go through and read it over and over and over. I end up now I read it 12 times before I open anybody else's book. One of the first things I noticed: look at verse 20. And he, now skip forward a few words, came forward. He came forward. Who was that? The guy with five. Skip down to verse 22. And he, skip a few words, came forward. Skip down to verse number 24. He also came forward. The guy that had been given five talents, he came forward. You see the picture. He's getting ready. He's going to evaluate. He's taking account of all of his servants. How does it happen? I don't know if this is anything to build on or not, but I do notice it. The guy that was given the most steps forward, he's evaluated. Then this guy steps forward, he's evaluated. And then this one steps forward, and he's evaluated. What does that tell us? Also notice this. The one who stepped forward that had been given five, he steps forward bringing five more. Bringing five more. And then verse, where's where's the text I'm looking at? So verse 17, so also is the idea, the guy that had two, he also brings forth two additional ones. And then this guy, he doesn't have four and he doesn't have ten. He still has the same one. I want you to write this thought down. He came forward, verses 20, 22, 24, points to the fact that Jesus wants us to know that all of us will be judged individually by Christ. There's not going to be this mass judgment at the judgment seat of Christ for Christians. We will be judged individually by Christ. And the idea that they're bringing forward these things as an example. That also tells us this. There's going to be, at the judgment, tangible evidence of what we have been doing with what God has given us. All of us, are, you are going to have your individual time, just you and God. Ryle writes it this way. We and God must at last meet face to face. We and God, I add to that, you and God and I and God must at last face to face. You are going to stand before the Lord and tangible evidence will be presented of what you've been doing. Remember the book of Revelation says that something's going to be opened. What gets opened in the book of Revelation? The the books. What does that mean? God is right now, how you and I are listening and reading and studying this text this morning. God, it is being written down how you are responding. And the books will be opened, and you're going to give an account. Now, this whole section, I'm going to go a little quicker here. Notice what happens in the evaluation. This one brings forth five more, and this one brings forth two more. And the master says, there's a commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. Then there is a promotion, right? So there's a commendation. Well done. Good and faithful. Then there's this promotion. You've been faithful over a little. I am going to set you over much. You've been faithful over a little. I'm going to set you over much. There's a promotion. And then there's a new location. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into your master's joy. There's a new location. So people who... Serve And they're saved. They really are ready for the second coming of the Lord. Here's what's going to happen. You will receive a commendation. You're going to receive a promotion. And you're going to receive a new location. And that new location, I think it's kind of this. Where I've been putting joy in you, I'm going to put you in joy. Where I've been putting some joy in you and you think, man, this is great. I had a moment of joy. No, you're going to be basking in joy. Joy, Come live in the joy. Rather than me putting a little joy in you, I'm going to have you live. you got a brand new location. It will be eternal delight. But also notice this. In the commendation and in the promotion and in the new location, this stood out to me. Here comes second servant. Having just heard what happened with the servant with five talents. Here he comes. Now he can't say, Master, I don't have five talents like he just brought you. I saw what happened. You gave him 5 and now he has 5 additional. He made you 3 million dollars additional to what you gave him. I don't have that. But here's what I did, do. You gave me 1.2 million and I took that and made 1.2 million more and now I have 2.4. He made 1.8 million more dollars for you than I did. But you notice in the text that the second servant received the exact same commendation, promotion and new location. Well done. You've been faithful over a a little. I am going to make you, I'm going to set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The exact same. Why is that? He made 1.8 million more dollars for the master. The reason is the evaluation is going to be based on what you have been given. Good news, good news. I got some good news. You are not going to be evaluated by anyone else's life. So if you go around and you're like, I'm the person in charge to evaluate other people's life. And somebody else is evaluating their life. And they think they're the authority. Don't worry about that. They're not the one that's ultimately going to judge you. But you don't get to evaluate other people's life. But good news. Though you're not judged by by their life, you will be judged by your life. And you're going to want that to happen. You're going to be glad that happens. You're going to welcome hearing, well done, thou good and faithful servant, if you have been faithful. And that is the point of today's message. Quick thought. Look at verse 21. Notice verse 21. Because something stood out to me. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. Now real quick. So I know that you're tracking with me. In verse 21. By using my unexact numbers. What was just called a little? Say it. Three million. Listen. You've been faithful over a little? What? Three million dollars. I don't I think if any of us would be like, hey, listen, I'm leaving. I got some money, okay? And I'm gonna leave it with you. Oh, okay. All right. Here's three million. With what? Three dollars three million. You've been faithful over a little. I'm gonna make you, I'm gonna set you over much. That struck me. Like the Lord just calls three million. He cost five talents. He calls a hundred years of labor. For a labor, a life, more than a lifetime of labor for someone, that's been just a little. I'm going to set you over much. Now, I want you to write R.T. Francis' comment because if you're thinking, you may be like, I don't know if I really like this promotion. Is that really a promotion? Good news. Guess what? You've been faithful over a little. Yeah. Get my freedom, right? No. You're going to be responsible for a lot more than you've ever been responsible for before. What? I thought I did good. Yeah, you did so well. I'm going to give you more. Write down what France writes. The reward for reliability is not to be set free from slavery or released from responsibility, but to be given more of it. More of it. And so we hear that in our American ears and thinking. And here's what we do. Like, man, I'm hoping I'm getting to heaven. I'm going to float around on a a cloud and strumming a harp and sitting by the pool drinking pina coladas. That's kind of what I anticipated. And there's going to be that heavenly choir over there. And if I want to go join them, I'll join them. But that could get old. And so I just want to sit by the pool forever and ever. Not what's going to happen. And so you may be thinking, this doesn't sound good. France continues. He says, but along So The reward is not freedom from slavery. The reward is not to be released from responsibility. He says, but along with the added responsibility goes a significant change of status, the new relationship of sharing the master's happiness. Guys, Jesus is trying to tell us something that this, I know how we think, but it's really a good thing. MacArthur picks up on it because I have two quotes back to back. Let's move right to that one quickly. MacArthur writes, every soul in heaven, every soul in heaven will equally possess eternal life. If you make it to heaven, we will all possess eternal life. In fact, I didn't have room for it, but he talks about we will possess equal righteousness. Equal righteousness, equal eternal life. So then everybody's the same, right? No, no, no. He's correct. MacArthur writes, the difference will be in opportunities and levels of service. There will be difference. Same eternal life, same righteousness. Difference in difference of opportunities and difference in levels of service. He says, just as the angels serve God in ranks, so will redeemed men and women. Redeemed men and women will serve God in ranks, and there will be differences. Before I hit the third point, let me, let me make that a little more clear. Remember, we live in a fallen world. We live in a sin-cursed world. You remember because of sin, the serpent no longer has legs, and he crawls on his belly. Women now have pain in childbearing, and the ground is cursed so that it doesn't produce like it once did. Death starts happening all around, and all of that put together, and mankind, as you go work, it's not going to be just work. It's going to be labor. It is laborious. You want to know why some people don't work? Because it's laborious. I don't like the labor. It's hard. It's frustrating. It just never goes like we think it would go. Amen, Jeff and Don. It doesn't always go how we think, but praise the Lord. Then there's this reward for the service that is well done. So here's here's a quick thought. Though it may not go how you want, I've also noticed some folks who choose not to work, but by not working, it's not good for their psychology. I mean, their emotions are shot. I mean, they're not producing anything. Jeff, what's your point? Ladies and gentlemen, you were created to work. The fall of sin and the curse of sin makes it laborious to work, but you are made. You like to produce things. You find fulfillment in that. And so when people don't work, all of a sudden they're not feeling fulfilled. They think they would by laying on the couch all day and playing video games all day. But it doesn't. They they go spiraling downward. And then they look to find happiness in that thing and that thing and that thing. And then horrible things start happening in their life. We are made To produce work. And what the Lord is hinting at is once in the next life and the curse is lifted and it's no longer laborious. It's going to be a delight to serve the Lord. You will want to have a higher level of service. Everybody equally righteous. Everyone has equal eternal life. But there's going to be levels of service. And I thought about this. I didn't delve into my notes. Not the first message I ever preached here. But the first message I ever preached here as the new pastor at Graceview in August of 2016. I made a comment, and I thought about this this week. I believe that this first creation is just the ground floor of something that is way bigger than we, than we realize. You say, wait, well, what did you just say? You just called this the what? Creation? Right, this is the first creation. Nothing in the Bible says there's going to be a second Nothing in the Bible says there will not be a second. I think the Lord's trying to give us a hint. You have the opportunity. You have the opportunity to get in on something way bigger than you realize. You have no clue what this is going to become. And your placement in that. Now getting there is by grace. By trusting Christ. You don't work to get there. But your placement within it, that depends on what you do here. And the Lord commends good stewardship of what you've been given. Thirdly. Verses 24 to 30, we find that Jesus condemns wasting opportunity. Jesus condemns wasting opportunity. Verses 24 to 30. He commends good stewardship. He condemns being wasteful. I'm not going to reread all this text, I don't think. But look at verse 24 because I think there's layers to this guy's mind. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Now really hear his words. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. I'll give you back what what you gave me. There, I'll just give it back to you. Coupled with what the master says back to this servant, I started realizing, man, this guy's got some serious layers to his heart. This is a man who is fearful. What's in his heart? He has fear, but also sense a lot of anger, right? Um what was his name? How would Yoda say it? Much fear I sense in you. <laughs> Much anger I sense in you. He has fear, he has anger. Can I go further? This guy he has resentment. Here's how he looks at his master. I know what you are. You're a person who uses what you have and you exploit people. You exploit people. You didn't sow over there and you go reap over there and you didn't scatter seed over there and you harvest over there. I know, I know you're type. You use people to get more for yourself. And so you sense his resentment. You sense his anger, maybe even some hatred. But he's just a servant so he can't rally up and really attack. But So what he can do, you gave me this, I'm just going to bury it. He's fearful. Definitely he's fearful. But he's also, what do we know based on the master when he says about him, it's not just those three things. He's also lazy. He is lazy. And that is often at the heart of why some people don't serve the Lord. All of those reasons may be in there. Why don't this one serve the Lord? Because they're angry at God for something. And over here's this one, right? They're fearful of the Lord. And over here's this one, just lazy. Don't want to do anything for the Lord because they're slothful and lazy. Carson helps me here. I'm going to borrow from D.A. Carson. He writes that the servant here in verse 24, quote, here's what he's saying, right? Quote, you ready? Should he take the risk of of trying to increase the one talent entrusted to him, Catch this funny wording, what he's saying is if he should do this, here it goes again, should he take the risk of trying to increase the one talent entrusted to him, he would see little of the profit. If he failed and lost everything, he would incur the master's wrath. So, in a rather spiteful act, he returns to his master what belongs to him no more and no less. But he writes, what this servant overlooks is his responsibility to his master and his obligation He's a servant. He is a slave. And I know we don't like to think of ourselves that way, but we talked about that two weeks ago, ladies and gentlemen. We are servants of God and we are slaves of God. I know when we get saved, we become the children of God. We're the sheep of his pasture. I know all of that. And I believe the sonship and the daughtership of Christians is the primary relationship. And we go from sinners to being saints and all those wonderful things. But we also, again, we become servants of God. And so this guy has totally forgotten. You're his servant. You're responsible to him. He has this attitude. What's in it for me? And I I get the sense this is not an American thing only, and it's not a 21st century or 20th century. I think it's been in the church forever. There's a group of people that have this attitude. Why would I serve the Lord? What's in it for me? You were made to serve the Lord. You serve him because you love the Lord. We're indebted to the Lord. You don't serve him to go to heaven and earn your salvation, but you serve him because he's blessed you so much, and he's called you, and he's gifted you with this, and you're going to give an account of what the Lord has given you. So many Christians are mere consumers, just consumers. Notice verse 26. Because I'm going to propose to you that the master has insight into the guy's heart that is not just evident on the surface. The master sees below the surface. Verse 26. His master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You, watch this as a question the way it's translated here in the ESV. You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, give it to him who has the 10 talents. I want you to write a sentence and I, I, I apologize, I should have put who gave me this idea, I didn't write it down and I apologize. The word slothful can actually mean someone who timidly hesitates. The word slothful So here I'm going to need second time today really drill down and say there's a group of us that this may be the most important part of the message, what I'm getting ready to talk about. The idea of slothful, yes, it it can mean lazy and sometimes it's translated by some translators as lazy. But it can also mean to timidly hesitate. Jeff, why is this so important? It's this attitude. God... Again, Jesus is the one represented by this master. We're the ones that's been given the talent or the talents. Could you imagine standing before the Lord bringing this? God, I know that you want your work done a certain way. And so I just didn't do it because (laughs) you got to admit, I didn't do your work, anything wrong in doing your work. I didn't make any mistakes in ministerial work. And the Lord's answer will be because you didn't do anything in ministerial work. You didn't make any mistakes in working in my kingdom because you didn't do any work in my kingdom because you wasted. I gave you a gift of life, and I gave you all these things, your unique blend. I gave you that, and you did nothing with it. You wasted life because you are lazy and timidly hesitant. That's what's being preached against here. So I'm going to drill down just a little bit more because I'm going to go ahead and tell you, this is me that I'm preaching to. There's a lot of passages in the Bible that speak out and we we, we preach firmly against the proud and the arrogant, especially those that think if I do all these things, God will see and I'll go to heaven and he'll be impressed or he'll appreciate what I'm doing and that'll get me into heaven. So we preach against that really hard and we preach against Christians who think, right, I'm going to read the Bible and I'm going to get me a list of do's and don'ts and in the power of their own flesh, they go out and try to be religious and do it in their own strength and we preach against that arrogance and pride. But guys, this particular passage really seems to especially be hitting on the timid. The timid. Write this thought. In verses 26 and 27, Jesus is the one who's telling this parable, guys. I understand Jesus is the one who's telling the parable. He could have gone any direction he wanted. But I want us to understand, Jesus is not describing himself as corrupt when he puts... This man who makes this charge, this allegation, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you had not sown, gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. The Lord is not saying that he's a corrupt person. What he's saying is that on that day of judgment and valuation, there will be no excuses for refusing to serve him. No excuses. So ladies and gentlemen of grace for you, if you think I've got some pretty good excuses ready for the day of judgment, when I stand before the Lord at the judgment seat, not the great white throne, That's the unsaved. But when we as Christians stand before the Lord to be evaluated how we live these lives, I've got some pretty good excuses as to why I've not been doing anything with my life for the Lord and why I'm just content to be saved and go to heaven. Well, just understand, you're going to get a rude awakening because he's not going to accept your excuses. If you think you're going to stand before Jesus and say, Lord, you know I'm not as gifted as others, so I just assume you didn't want me to do anything. not going to work. Lord, I'm not as gifted as others, so I just let them do it. You know the really gifted people? They're doing it. I'm just staying out of the way. I didn't want to mess it up. Here it is. Lord, you know I'm timid by nature. No one ever specifically approached me. I know I saw in the bulletin, and I know I heard over and over and over about the things that need done, generally speaking, congregationally but no one ever came and specifically told me would you be willing to and since they didn't do that i did nothing you understand that right no he doesn't i'm just timid that's the way i'm that's the way i am i just over here in the shadows it's not going to fly it's not going to fly or again to this man's point Lord, I know you're so strict, and I was just so afraid to mess it up, and the fear of your wrath outweighed what I was going to gain, so I decided to do nothing except be saved and pray and read my Bible in private. It's not going to fly. You will have regrets. In fact, could it be, I'm just offering, could it be that that attitude belongs in the heart of a certain kind of person? You see your next note? You see that list? Write down this word. His, the third servant's accusatory attitude. You see that? When we take his accusatory attitude of that third servant, let's couple that with these other words that are linked to him in the rest of the text. Words like what? You see them on the handout. Wicked. These aren't my words. This is Jesus' words. Wicked, slothful, worthless, Darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth, accusatory attitude, fearful of the master, apparently doesn't know the master. What's all that? All that together makes it clear. What kind of person are we talking about here? This third servant is the kind of person who represents those who are not true Christians because they've only been pretending to be Christians as is proven by their lack of service. Lack of service is associated with the third guy, And these words come up. Wicked, slothful, worthless, darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. J.C. Ryle, one more time, says, Let us beware of do-nothing Christianity. Beware of do-nothing Christianity. I wish I would have continued to quote. Because he talks about how the Holy Spirit does not put do-nothing Christianity in the hearts of believers. A lack of service really raises major questions. If that's your life, if you last week at the end when I said, anybody here, anybody, raise your hand. Jeff, I think I'm not really sure about my salvation. I might be like these five foolish, stupid virgins that did not bring any oil. I think I may not have my my own salvation, my own relationship with the Lord. Not a one hand went up. But if all the people that were here last week that didn't raise their hand, can you honor to look at your life and say, I serve the Lord in in this way, in this way, in this way, in this way? If you can't, Man. Lack of service raises some major questions from the text. Now I'm almost done. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, actually verse 26, You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. Do you see what he's doing? Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. If you seriously think I make demands on what's not mine, yeah, you didn't sow that, and you didn't scatter that seed. If you really think I make demands on what is not mine, what do you think I will do on what is mine? What is mine? That money I gave you. That money I gave you is mine. So if you really, really thought, if this was really your thinking, he makes demands in areas that aren't even his. This is his. I'd better get out and do something with this. If you really believe that. Really what he's saying is you should have gone and traded and worked with like they did. But at the very least, you should have put it to the bankers so that they could get some interest from it. Not as much as they would, but at least I would have been given more than I gave you. I could have buried it. I could have buried it. You buried what I gave you? God didn't give you what he's given you in that list that I gave you, like the third note. He didn't give you that unique blend to just bury it. God's like, I I could do that. I could give that to no one. What did you do with it? What did you do with yours? France writes the following. You'll see the intro first. Here's something I read over and over because the Lord says you should have put it to the bankers. Well, here's the unique thing. They didn't have banks like we do. They had banking. But they didn't have big vaults, steel and concrete behind a big safe and security systems. So write this thought. Banks of that time were not secured. They were not secured. You could give it to a banker and he could get robbed or he could embezzle it and steal your money, bolt, leave town. You could lose it. But again, R.T. France writes the following. Risk is at the heart of discipleship. By playing it safe, the cautious slave has achieved nothing. The cautious slave has achieved nothing. That rang true in my ears. That's why I put it on your handout this week. Risk, guys, is at the very heart of discipleship. You know who I thought of? And This was a whole other sermon. This was a whole other sermon. Paul's attitude toward ministry in 1 Corinthians 9. You know how Paul ministered to the Jews? As a what? Anybody remember that? He says, I run the race to win the race. So if I'm ministering to the Jews, I minister to them as if I am a Jew. When I'm ministering to people, that are Gentile proselytes and they know the law, I minister to them as if I'm one of them that I know the law. He says, when I come across someone that they've not been exposed to the law of God... I minister to them as if I'm someone who's not been exposed to the law of God. When I come across someone who has this, they, 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 they've come out of strict, you know, legalism. And, but they've learned grace, but they're still kind of weak in some areas. And still kind of think some things might be wrong. Really, they're not. But they think those things are wrong. You know what Paul says? Hey, when I'm around the weak, I'm, I, I'm as one that is weak. What he's saying in 1 Corinthians 9 is I do some risky things. And Paul took a lot of flack for what he did. Paul kind of branched out there. I think put that thought with this, and I think what the Lord is trying to tell us. I would rather you do something that is risky and you taking a chance and maybe some other people take some shots at you rather than just sit on the side like a bump on a log. Let me go ahead and tell you this. You do something for Christ and somebody's going to come up and they're going to challenge what you do and they're going to think they know your heart, but they don't know your heart. Let them do it. The Lord knows our heart. You take what you've been given and you serve the Lord from your heart. Purely. My perspective changed probably eight, nine years ago, maybe seven or eight. I just preached for a friend of mine. I alluded to this the other day. I preached for Dale Gooding down in Prosperity, South Carolina. It was their homecoming. And when it was over, all the food was put away, and we were just hanging out with Dale and Wendy. And Dale said, uh, and I think he was preaching through Matthew. I know he, was, he spent two years. I don't know how he did that. Still two years. I think he cheated, though. He did some Sunday nights and Sunday mornings. Blended. It still took him two years, so about the same amount of time. After that day, this was probably 2014-ish, and Dale said, Jeff, you need to be preaching somewhere every week. I said, yeah, right? I said, well, we'll see what the Lord's will. He said, no, Jeff, I'm serious. So I'm going to share something that's uncomfortable. He said, Jeff, you're going to give an account for what God's put into you. You really need to evaluate, are you using what God has put in you the way it should be? Hey, I'm teaching a Christian school. I'm assistant on staff at a church. But I kind of needed him to give me a verbal slap in the face. Here's why. As in my personality. I'm not the only one in the room. I am very content to be the second or third. I'm very content to be in the shadows. I'm content there. If somebody else will do it, can I get you a cup of water? Can I, can I get you something? You, you do it. But I needed to really be jolted into being more aggressive in pursuing God's will. I was afraid to be responsible to feed a group of people spiritually every week. Because it's a whole lot easier to preach about six times a year rather than... Every week, multiple times. I was really focused on what I couldn't do. And I wasn't very focused on what God could do and what God wanted to do. And he was right. And so we'll see when I stand before the Lord. I know the Lord was using me in teaching school. And it was awesome, great training, as I alluded to earlier. But it was at least time. And still then, the Lord had to really make my nest uncomfortable to get me. This passage is about people like me, particularly. So I want to ask you this. Look at verse 29. Take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. I want everybody in here to think of a Christian. Just in your mind, think of a Christian who you know takes what they've been given and has done a lot with it. Think of someone. Do you know a Christian? You're like, man... This person has really done a lot with what God... They may have only a little. You, you may, some of you are thinking of someone... All those things on that early list, man, physical and intellect and, and home life and money. They don't have a lot, but boy, they are really faithful with that. Or maybe some of you are thinking, I know someone, they've got a lot of advantages. They've got a lot of connections. They're super highly spiritually gifted. But they have been maxing out. If you have thought of someone... I want to encourage you, as long as they are following the Lord, be inspired by them and emulate them. Why? Because today's parable teaches us you have a day of judgment before God. You do. You will not be evaluated by my life. You will not be evaluated by your parents' life. Some of you may say, man, my parents are gonna have a lot of rewards. They were so great and awesome. Praise the Lord. Their success is not gonna help you. Some of you are like, my parents were terrible, awful people. Our home was was just abusive in every way. Okay, you're not gonna be evaluated by them. You are gonna be evaluated by you. If any of you watching online right now, If any of you, if this describes you, you make a habit of looking at other people's gifts and resources and opportunities and their experiences and advantages and connections and money and ability to make money. You look at all those and spiritual gifting. If you ever look at them and think, well, I'm envious of that. Don't do that. God made them to live their life. He made you to live your life. If you've ever looked at them and thought, well, if I had all of those things, well, then I would live for the Lord also, and I would serve Him also. I'm going to tell you something. I'm being honest, not trying to be mean. You would do with more exactly what you do with what you currently have. You Don't think, if I had more like them, then I would do more. No, you would be you. You'd just be you with more. So I finished with this last note, and it is a really awkward Not well put together note, but I I ran out of space. And I wanted to get the last two thoughts, and so I've connected them by this little word also, right? Because we're going to two ends of the spectrum. Perhaps you feel like, Jeff, false modesty aside, I'm over there with the one talent people. I'm in that group with the one talent guy. The Lord's just giving me one talent. Oh, I hope you hear this. I'll promise you. If that is you, if that is true, you need to know that so much of God's genuine work being done on earth is being done by people whom God chose to give less ability to. So much of His work is being done by those He didn't give as much to. Now, on the flip side, if you're just honest, Jeff taking all things into consideration, all that list that we had on the First page of notes, I've been highly gifted. Then you need to understand, if you've been highly gifted, you are highly responsible. And he's watching. He's watching. You're going to give an account. So I ask you this, if your life ended today, what would Jesus say of your life? If your life ended today, what would Christ say of your life and how you've lived it? All true Christians receive gifts, experiences, opportunities, a unique special blend. All true Christians. If you're sitting there saying, I'm a true Christian, all right. All true Christians have a unique blend that's been given to them. Gifts, opportunities, experiences, resources, you name it. I want you to answer this question, then we're going to close our eyes for a moment. Here's the question. Do one of these four words describe your life till this point? Which one of these words most closely describes your life? Christian. Here's the word. Discontent. Second word, fearful. Third word, lazy. Fourth word, faithful. Which one best describes how you've been living your Christian life? Discontent. Looking at everybody else. Fearful, timid, lazy, or faithful? Heads about, eyes closed just for a moment. Just before I pray, how faithfully have you leveraged your physical makeup? How have you leveraged your intellect for Christ? How have you leveraged your early home life, your personality? How have you leveraged? You say, Jeff, I've been exposed to the gospel, the pure gospel. I've heard it. I am saved. How have you leveraged your knowledge of the gospel, your particular training, your discipleship? We are not going to be able to stand before the Lord and say we lived in very restrictive culture like those in North Korea or China. We're going to have to stand before the Lord and say, Lord, you put me in a time and a place where I could share the gospel and meet with people and just share my faith openly. So that's our culture. How have you been leveraging this culture? All of your advantages, your money, your capacity to earn, your health while you have it, your time, your spiritual gifts, your energy. Do you give like a lot of energy to other things and very little to no energy to the Lord? How faithfully have you leveraged your unique gift blend for Christ? Right before I pray, has God put you over something? Has God put you over something? If he has, have you done your best? Have you done your best with what God's given you? Let's stand this morning. Father, Lord, I thank you for speaking to me this week through this text and convicting me. Lord, I pray that I'll be sensitive to your Holy Spirit and not be so timid as Jeff is and be more like your Holy Spirit and have a boldness willing to take risks. Lord, let me not charge ahead either, like a bull. Let me not be arrogant and prideful, thinking I can do something. But Lord, as you speak, and I see the need, may I use what you've given me and leverage it for Christ. Lord, I want to hear you say, well done. I want to hear you say that I'm being promoted. Lord, I want to live in your joy, and I pray that all this congregation will go with me. That we'll all be promoted. That we'll all be commended. Father, if there's one here. Father, please, if there's one listening. That their lack of service for you is actually an indication they're just a pretender. They're not a real Christian. Lord, I pray that you would just make them so uneasy. Convict them. Make them miserable. To the point where they can't sleep and they can't rest until they get that right. Lord, let us all be prepared with the preparation of salvation and the preparation of faithful servant. And then may we anticipate and long for Christ to return. It's in his name we pray. Amen.